Chapter Two of Patricia Brent Spinster. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Patricia Brent Spinster by Herbert Jenkins. Chapter Two, The Bonzer Tricks Menage. The next morning, Patricia awakened with a feeling that something had occurred in her life. For a time, she lay pondering as to what it could be. Suddenly, memory came with a flash, and she smiled. That night she was dining out. As suddenly as it had come, the smile faded from her lips and eyes, and she mentally apostrophized herself as a little idiot for what she had done. Then, remembering Miss Wangle's remark and the expression on Mrs. Mosscrop Smythe's face, the lines of her mouth hardened, and there was a determined air about the tilt of her chin. She smiled again. "'Patricia Brent!' "'No, that won't do,' she broke off. Then, springing out of bed, she went over to the mirror, adjusted the dainty boudoir cap upon her head, and, bowing elaborately to her reflection, said, "'Patricia Brent, I invite you to dine with me this evening at the Quadrant Grill Room. I hope you'll be able to come. How delightful! We shall have a most charming time!' Then she sat on the edge of the bed and pondered. Of course, she would have to come back radiantly happy. Girls who've been out with their fiancés always return radiantly happy. That will mean two crendements instead of one. That's another shilling, perhaps two, she murmured. Then she must have a good dinner, or else the crendement would get into her head. That would mean about seven shillings more. Oh, Patricia, Patricia, she wailed. You've let yourself in for an expense of at least ten shillings. The point being... Is a major in the British Army worth an expenditure of ten shillings? We shall... She was interrupted by the maid knocking at the door to inform her that it was her turn for the bathroom. As Patricia walked across the park that morning on her way to Eaton Square, where the politician lived, who employed her as private secretary whilst he was in the process of rising, she pondered over her last night's announcement. She was convinced that she had acted foolishly, and in a way that would probably involve her in not only expense, but some trouble and inconvenience. At the breakfast-table the conversation had been entirely devoted to herself, her fiancé, and the coming dinner together. Miss Wangle, Mrs. Mosscrop Smythe, and Miss Sikkim, supported by Mrs. Crass Morton, had returned to the charge time after time. Patricia had taken refuge in her habitual breakfast silence, and, finding that they could draw nothing from her, her fellow guests had proceeded to discuss the matter among themselves. It was with a feeling of relief that Patricia rose from the table. There was an east wind blowing, and Patricia had always felt that an east wind made her a materialist. This morning she was depressed. There was in her heart a feeling that fate had not been altogether kind to her. Her childhood had been spent in a small town on the east coast, under the care of her father's sister, who, when Mrs. Brent died, had come to keep house for Mr. John Brent, and take care of his five-year-old daughter. In her aunt, Patricia found a woman soured by life. What it was that had soured her, Patricia could never gather. But Aunt Adelaide was forever emphasizing the fact that men were beasts. Later, Patricia saw in her aunt a disappointed woman. She could remember as a child examining with great care her aunt's hard features and angular body, and wondering if she had ever been pretty, and if anyone had kissed her because they wanted to, and not because it was expected of them. The lack of sympathy between aunt and niece had driven Patricia more and more to seek her father's companionship. 
he was a silent man, little given to emotion or demonstration of affection. He loved Patricia, but lacked the faculty of conveying to her the knowledge of his love. As she walked across the park, Patricia came to the conclusion that, for some reason or other, love, or the outward visible signs of love, had been denied her. Warm-hearted, impetuous, spontaneous, she had been chilled by the self-repression of her father and the lack of affection of her aunt. She had been schooled to regard God as the God of punishment rather than the God of love. One of her most terrifying recollections was that of the Sundays spent under the paternal roof. To her father, religion counted for nothing, but to her aunt it counted for everything in the world. The hereafter was to be the compensation for renunciation in this world. Miss Brent's attitude towards prayer was that of one who regards it as a means by which he is able to convey to the Almighty what she expects of him in the next world as a reward for what she has done, or rather not done, in this. Patricia had once asked, in a childish moment of speculation, "'But, Aunt Adelaide, suppose God doesn't make us happy in the next world. What shall we do then?' "'Oh, yes, he will,' was her aunt's reply." uttered with such grimness that Patricia, though only six years of age, had been satisfied that not even God would dare to disappoint Aunt Adelaide. Patricia had been a lonely child. She had come to distrust spontaneity, and, in consequence, became shy and self-conscious, with the inevitable result that other children, the few who were in Aunt Adelaide's opinion fit for her to associate with, made it obvious that she was one by herself. Patricia had fallen back on her father's library, where she had read many books, that would have caused her aunt agonies of stormy anguish had she known. Patricia early learned the necessity for dissimulation. She always carefully selected two books, one that she could ostensibly be reading if her aunt happened to come into the library, and the other that she herself wanted to read, and of which she knew her aunt would strongly disapprove. Miss Brent regarded boarding schools as hotbeds of vice, and in consequence Patricia was educated at home educated in a way that she would never have been at any school, for Miss Brent was thorough in everything she undertook. The one thing for which Patricia had to be grateful to her aunt was her general knowledge, and the sane methods adopted with her education. But for this she would not have been in the position to accept a secretaryship to a politician. When Patricia was twenty-one her father had died, and she inherited from her mother an annuity of a hundred pounds a year. Her aunt had suggested that they should live together, but Patricia had announced her intention of working, and with the money that she realized from the sale of her father's effects, particularly his library, she came to London and underwent a course of training in shorthand, typewriting, and general secretarial work. This was in March 1914. Before she was ready to undertake a post, the war broke out upon Europe like a cataclysm, and a few months later Patricia had obtained a post as private secretary to Mr. Arthur Bonser, M.P., Mr. Bonser was the victim of marriage. Destiny had ordained that he should spend his life in golf and gardening, or in breeding earless rabbits and stingless bees. He was bucolic and passive. Mrs. Bonser, however, after a slight altercation with Destiny, had decided that Mr. Bonser was to become a rising politician. Thus it came about that, pushed on from behind by Mrs. Bonser, and led by Patricia, whose general knowledge was of the greatest possible assistance to him, Mr. Bonser was in the elaborate process of rising at the time when Patricia determined to have a fiancé. Mr. Bonser was a small, fair-haired man, prematurely bald, an indifferent speaker, but excellent in committee. Instinctively, he was gentle and kind. 
Mrs. Bonser disliked Patricia, and Patricia was indifferent to Mrs. Bonser. Mrs. Bonser, however, recognised that in Patricia her husband had a remarkably good secretary, one whom it would be difficult to replace. Mrs. Bonser's attitude to everyone who was not in a superior position to herself was one of patronage. Patricia she looked upon as an upper servant, although she never dared show it. Patricia, on the other hand, showed very clearly that she had no intention of being treated other than as an equal by Mrs. Bonser, and the result was a sort of armed neutrality. They seldom met. When by chance they encountered each other in the house, Mrs. Bonser would say, "'Good morning, Miss Brent. I hope you walked across the park.' Patricia would reply, "'Yes, most enjoyable. I invariably walk across the park when I have time.' And with a forced smile, Mrs. Bonser would say, "'That is very wise of you.' Never did Mrs. Bonser speak to Patricia without inquiring if she had walked across the park. One day Patricia anticipated Mrs. Bonser's inevitable question by announcing, "'I walked across the park this morning, Mrs. Bonser, and it was most delightful.' And Mrs. Bonser had glared at her, but, remembering Patricia's value to her husband, had made a non-committal reply and passed on. Henceforth Mrs. Bonser dropped all reference to the park. On the first day of Patricia's entry into the Bonser household, Mrs. Bonser had remarked, "'Of course you'll stay to lunch.' and Patricia had thanked her and said she would. But when she found that her luncheon was served on a tray in the library where Mr. Bonser did his work, she had decided that henceforth exercise in the middle of the day was necessary for her, and she lunched out. Mr. Bonser had married beneath him. His father, a land-poor squire in the north of England, had impressed upon all his sons that money was essential as a matrimonial asset, and Mr. Bonser, not having sufficient individuality to starve for love, had determined to follow the parental decree. How he met Miss Triggs, the daughter of the prosperous Stratham builder and contractor Samuel Triggs, nobody knew, but his father had congratulated him very cordially about having contrived to marry her. Miss Triggs' friends to a woman were of the firm conviction that it was Miss Triggs who had married Mr. Bonser. "'Attie's so ambitious,' remarked her father soon after the wedding, "'that it's almost a relief to get her married.' Mr. Bonser was scarcely back from his honeymoon before he was in full possession of the fact that Mrs. Bonser had determined that he should become famous. She had read how helpful many great men's wives had been in their career, and she determined to be the power behind the indeterminate Arthur Bonser. Poor Mr. Bonser, who desired nothing better than a peaceful life, and had looked forward to a future of ease and prosperity when he married Miss Triggs, discovered when too late that he had married not so much Miss Triggs, as an abstract sense of ambition. Domestic peace was to be purchased only by an attitude of entire submission to Mrs. Bonser's schemes. He was not without brains, but he lacked that impetus necessary to getting on. Mrs. Bonser, who was not lacking in shrewdness, observed this and determined that she herself would be the impetus. Mr. Bonser came to dread mealtimes, that is, mealtimes tete-a-tete, during these symposiums he was subjected to an elaborate cross-examination as to what he was doing to achieve greatness. Mrs. Bonser insisted upon his being present at every important function to which he could gain admittance, particularly the funerals of the illustrious great. Egged on by her, he became an inveterate writer of letters to the newspapers, particularly the Times. Sometimes his letters appeared, which caused Mrs. Bonser intense gratification. 
but editors soon became shy of a man who bombarded them with letters upon every conceivable subject from the submarine menace to the question of should women wear last year's frocks mr triggs had once described his daughter very happily eddie's one of them that ain't content with pressing a bell but she must keep her thumb on the bell push that was mrs bonser all over she lacked restraint both physical and artistic and she conceived that if you only make noise enough people will sooner or later begin to take notice within three years of his marriage mr bonser entered the house of commons he had first of all fought in a radical constituency and been badly beaten but the second time he had by some curious juggling of chance been successful in an almost equally strong radical division much to the delight of mrs bonser the success had been largely due to her idea of flooding the constituency with pretty girl canvases but she had been very careful to keep a watchful eye on mr bonser one of her reasons for engaging patricia for really mrs bonser was responsible for the engagement had been that she had decided that patricia was indifferent to men and she decided that mr bonser might safely be trusted with patricia brent for long periods of secretarial communion mr bonser although not lacking in susceptibility was entirely devoid of that courage which subjugates the feminine heart once he had permitted his hand to rest upon patricia's but he never forgot the look she gave him and for weeks after he felt a most awful dog and wondered if patricia would tell mrs bonser when she married mrs bonser saw that it would be necessary to drop her family that is as far as practicable it could not be done entirely because her father was responsible for the allowance which made it possible for the bonsers to live in eaton square the old man was not lacking in shrewdness and he had no intention of being thrown overboard by his ambitious daughter it occasionally happened that mr triggs would descend upon the bonser household and although mrs bonser did her best to suppress him that is without in any way showing she was ashamed of her parent he managed to make patricia's acquaintance and from that time made a practice of inquiring for and having a chat with her mrs bonser was grateful to providence for having removed her mother previous to her marriage mrs triggs had been a homely soul with a marked inclination to be friendly she overflowed with good humour and was a woman who would always talk in an omnibus or join a wedding crowd and compare notes with those about her she addressed mr triggs as pa which caused her daughter a mental anguish of which mrs triggs was entirely unaware it was not until miss triggs was almost out of her teens that her mother was persuaded to cease calling her girly in mrs bonser the reforming spirit was deeply ingrained but she had long since despaired of being able to influence her father's taste in dress she groaned in spirit each time she saw him for his sartorial ideas were not those of mayfair he leant towards checks rather loud checks trousers that were tight about the calf and a coat that was a sporting conception of the morning coat with a large flat pocket on either side he invariably wore a red tie and an enormous watch chain across his prosperous looking figure his hat was a high felt an affair that seemed to have set out in life with the ambition of being a top hat but losing heart had compromised if mrs bonser dreaded her father's visits patricia welcomed them she was genuinely fond of the old man mr triggs radiated happiness from the top of his shiny bald head with its fringe of sandy grey hair to his square-toed boots that invariably emitted little squeaks of joy he wore a fringe of whiskers round his chubby face otherwise he was clean-shaven holding that beards were messy things 
He had what Patricia called crinkly eyes, that is to say, each time he smiled there seemed to radiate from them hundreds of little lines. He always addressed Patricia as Medea, and not infrequently brought her a box of chocolates, to the scandal of Mrs. Bonser, who had once expostulated with him that that was not the way to treat her husband's secretary. tut tut tatty had been Mr. Triggs' response. "'She's a fine gal. If I was a bit younger, I shouldn't be surprised if there was a second Mrs. Triggs.' "'Father!' Mrs. Bonser had expostulated in horror. "'Remember that she's Arthur's secretary!' Mr. Triggs had almost choked with laughter. Mirth invariably seemed to interfere with his respiration, and ended in violent and wheezy coughings and gaspings. Had Mrs. Bonser known that he repeated the conversation to Patricia, she would have been mortified, almost to the point of discharging her husband's secretary. "'You see, me dear,' Mr. Triggs had once said to Patricia, "'Ettie's so busy bothering about H's that she's got time for nothing else. She ain't exactly proud of her old father,' he had added shrewdly. "'But she finds his brass a bit useful.' Mr. Triggs was under no delusion as to his daughter's attitude towards him. One day he had asked Patricia rather suddenly, "'Why don't you get married, my dear?' Patricia had started and looked up at him quickly. "'Married? Me, Mr. Triggs? Oh, I suppose for one thing nobody wants me, and for another I'm not in love.' Mr. Triggs had pondered a little over this. "'That's right, my dear,' he said at length. "'Never you marry, except you feel you can't help it.' then you'll know it's the right one. Don't you marry a chap because he's got a lot of brass. You marry for the same reason that me and my missus married, because we felt we couldn't do without each other. And the old man's voice grew husky. You wouldn't believe it, me dear, how I miss her, though she's been dead eight years next May. Patricia had been deeply touched, and, not knowing what to say, had stretched out her hand to the old man, who took and held it for a moment in his. As she drew her hand away, she felt a tear splash upon it, and it was not her own. "'Ever hear that song, My Old Dutch?' he asked after a lengthy silence. Patricia nodded. "'I used to sing it to her. God bless my soul, what an old fool I'm getting, talking to you in this way. Now I must be getting off. Lord, what would Hattie say if she knew?' But Mrs. Bonser did not know. End of chapter 2